Hmm? Yeah. <laughs> There's a quote on your outline there. It says something like this. Life can only be understood backwards but must be lived forwards. What do you think that means? I want to hear from you. What do you think that quote from Soren Kierkegaard, who was a Christian philosopher, what do you think that means? Life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. You tell me. Sounds nice. Okay, so we, we can't, we don't know what the future will hold, but we know what the past, uh, what has happened in the past, and so it appreciates that. Does it? Yeah, possibly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. Other um, suggestions as to what it means? Come on, give it a go. Yeah. Okay, when you're in the moment, um, it's hard to know what's going on. There's a confusion. But in retrospect, when you look back, you can see, you can see something was occurring. You can see a logic. You can see a reason. Yep, up the back, got some men, some very intelligent men up the back. I, I don't want them thinking because they're on the sound desk that they can uh, slacken off. What do you guys reckon? What does it mean? Yes, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great. See, it, it, is, it is interesting to consider. Uh, life can only be understood backwards, but it must be lived forwards. I mean, it suggests to me that wouldn't it be great if you knew what was happening in the future, then you could live it forwards. If you understood back, then you could live forward. Well, that's exactly what is occurring in our passage in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Why don't you turn to 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. You'll see there that the Apostle Peter says what is going to happen in the future is now, in fact, close. He says that the end of all things is near. The Apostle Peter is providing certainty for us of the future, but this future hasn't stayed there. He said it's, it's very close to us now. Now, a person wearing with a, sa- a handmade sandwich board, um, perhaps cardboard, perhaps plywood, emblazoned across it, the end of the world is near, front and back, walking around Majors Bay Road, declaring it to anyone who would walk by. How do you think that person would be seen? I suspect most people seeing a person dressed up like that with that kind of message, walking around uh, Concord or anywhere in Australia would be seen as perhaps insane possibly someone with some degree of psychological disorder. But here, Peter is saying there in verse 7 that the end is near. And so is Peter one of those people? 
What's interesting is that what Peter is saying here isn't a suggestion of that leads to insanity, but actually quite the opposite. What Peter is saying is that the future is known. The future is known, and it is near. And that means that we can have a clear-mindedness to live forward, knowing that future. In Mark chapter 5, Jesus meets this terribly troubled man. He's possessed by a demon. So troubled is he in his mind, so confused is he that he lives in the tombs. At night he cuts himself with stones. Jesus encounters this man and heals him. And then remarkably, we're told in the Gospel of Mark that when people found him after he had encountered Jesus, he was seated, clothed, and clear-minded. It's exactly the same word that Peter uses here in 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 7. Peter is saying here, if you live as if the end is near, you're actually not crazy. You're actually sane. How could this be? Well, it's only because life can be understood, has to be understood backwards, but lived forwards. Peter is saying that the end is near because God has been at work God has been at work in his great work of saving humanity. And there was a time for which humanity had little indication of that. There was a time for which it was only promised. But in the person of Jesus, we read in the scriptures that this time has come, that Jesus has come to us in flesh, that he has died and that he rose again. And that in God's plan for the salvation of of humanity, all that is left is his return. And so Peter is saying that there isn't simply an end. There is an end, as we saw last week. There is the judgment of God, but this end is now near. This end is imminent in the scale and in the thinking of God. The Lord Jesus has come. Salvation is here, and so the end is near. This is very important for us to understand because this whole passage centres around this key idea. We saw last week that judgment, the judgment of God over humanity is inescapable. We saw in verse 6 very briefly that the gospel was preached even to those who are dead. If you look back in verse 6 of chapter 4, that I think simply means that the people who have since died, who have died, had heard the gospel proclaimed so that, verse 6 continues, they might be judged according to men in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. In other words, the gospel was proclaimed and people responded to the truth. And so since they have died and gone to heaven, they therefore meet Christ, not as judge, but as saviour. And I think what's clear, as we saw last week, was that the judgment of God is great reason for Christians to have comfort, knowing that although maligned, although existing in hostility, although persecuted, one day they will, they will be vindicated. And all will be put right. But it's as important to realise that judgment is not just Christian's vindication. It's also the motivation. 
and a great reminder as to why they're preaching the gospel. That's why he says there in verse 6, this is why we preach the gospel. Why did they preach the gospel? Because of the coming judgment. And if God's judgment is coming, that should do something for us. It should motivate us. It should motivate us to vigorous activity. And that's essentially what Peter lays out. You'll see there in your outline that I've laid out a number of areas or disciplines, um, elements of the Christian life that Peter deals with. And these are the key responses to the reality that the end is near. So what should you do? Well, you'll see there in the list, you should pray. You should love. You should show hospitality. You should serve. And you should praise or worship the Lord Jesus. So firstly, prayer. Here in Peter's mind, prayer is not the last resort, but the first. I don't know if you're like this. I am certainly like this. Prayer is often when all other alternatives have been exhausted, perhaps I will go to God in prayer. But in Peter's mind, prayer is not something that we do last. In Peter's mind, prayer is something that we should respond to first. The end is near. What should we do first? Not necessarily walk around with sandwich boards emblazoned on Majors Bay Road. In Peter's mind, what should we do first if the end is near? We should pray. The basis of all prayer is found in the nature and the character of God. And so prayer in Peter's mind here is not a mere expression of a desire, a deep desire in our hearts for an easier life. It's not based on uh, surprise desperation. No, it's a response to what God has promised. The end is near. Therefore, be sober-minded and pray. Prayer is a response to what God has promised. And like I said just earlier, the basis of all prayer is found in the nature and the character of God. He is our Father, as Jesus teaches us how to pray. And so we pray when we have a clarity in our mind about what he is like. We come to God in prayer knowing that we will face him in judgment knowing that he is good even when we face injustice. We come to him in prayer knowing that he is in control even when our lives feel like they're chaotic. We come to him in prayer knowing that he is gracious so that all men and women might be saved. See, we pray because the end is near. And if the end is near, God can be trusted. God can be trusted. Jesus himself predicted that when trials come, the love of many Christians will grow cold in Matthew chapter 24. See, what will Peter's command back in chapter 3 verse 9, what will it take for us to return blessing for insult? How do we live our lives like that? Well, we can only live our lives like that when we know that God is judge and when we come to him in prayer and ask him to equip us 
to act in a very unnatural way. It's most natural for us to return insult for insult. But Peter is he's offering us an alternative, an alternative in our lives. Peter is encouraging us to remember that Christ and his vic- has had victory over evil and that his return will usher in a new reality for our world. Christ is coming to judge the living and the dead. And that is great comfort to us because when we know he comes, he comes to bring comfort, to wipe away every tear. And so here is the God who judges. It's a God who also comforts. And this is the God Peter indicates and commands us to come to in prayer. Secondly, love. This is strange, isn't it? Because in one sense you can understand that if God is near, if the judgment of God is near, you can understand why you might pray, you might pray. But how does the judgment of God motivate Christians to live lives of love? Wouldn't it motivate Christians to live anxious kind of lives? Scared lives, scurrying around, crossing the I's and dotting the T's of your Christian faith. Well, here's the reason why. The only possible reason why Peter could say the end is near is that Jesus, the judge, could show up at any time. And really, the more you think about it, Peter is saying the more loving you will be. Now, that's not to say that that's not um, to say that Christians are afraid of Judgment Day in any way. We're not afraid of punishment. Christians are not afraid of meeting someone who has died for us, who has said and promised to us that he will never forsake us, that he will never reject us. Whoever comes to him, he will never cast out. We're not afraid of Judgment Day because there is no condemnation. But we should be afraid of Judgment Day in this way, of meeting the one who says, I will not reject you, and yet living an ungrateful life. That's what we should be scared of. Charles Spurgeon, in one of his sermons, says that if you cross the wheel of justice, the face of justice is a terrible thing to see. But if you cross the wheel of mercy, it's even more terrible. I think what Spurgeon meant is um, the motive of Christians is that when we meet the Lord Jesus on that day, we're not going to be afraid that he will cast us out. But we could be afraid of knowing that I have lived and I've been living as if I haven't been living. I have not been living as if I was completely loved. Above all, Love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. What does that mean? What does it mean for love to cover a multitude of sins? What do you think that means? What does it mean for love to cover a multitude of sins? Sorry? Forgiving? Yes? Any other suggestions? It means when you're wrong, you know, in everyday life when you're wrong with someone, 
Yeah, yeah. It's interesting um, that Peter is quoting there uh, and from a proverb, Proverbs chapter twelve, Proverbs chapter ten, verse twelve, which says, "Hatred stirs up dissension or quarrels, but love covers all wrong." You see what the opposite of love does in the proverb: hate. It stirs up. It creates problems. But what does love do? It covers over. It forbears. It forgives. Um, as Usha said, that's certainly the language of the Apostle Paul in a similar section. Let me say a couple of things about what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that love sweeps sin under the carpet. It doesn't mean that love avoids the difficulty of confrontation. It doesn't mean that love is opposed to discipline. It doesn't, certainly doesn't mean that love is an excuse for those who are victims to continue to be abused Uh, because of some platitude like love covers over a multitude of sins. Now, Peter is concerned about the quality of love that occurs within the church, and particularly within these churches of Asia Minor, because this is the real focus of this whole section in verses 7 to 11. It's on the Christian community. You'll see there in verses 8, 9, and 10, the language of one another is in every single one of those verses. Here, Peter is calling these Christians who are under the pressure of persecution to, to respond in love to one another, to pray, but also to love. And love one another deeply. Here that word deeply has the connotation of strenuous activity. It's an athlete lunging. That's the idea. I went to the soccer on Tuesday, Australia versus Lebanon, and there there were athletes lunging for the ball. Here is the very same idea. It's not a ball for which we're lunging at, but one another in love. And so we can't absolve ourselves from this challenge. Love here is not a passive thing. It's not as if you can have a goalkeeper for which when the striker kicks the goal, lets the ball pass him and says, it wasn't my fault, it was the defender's. No. What does the goalkeeper do? He lunges. He moves towards. And this this is the kind of love that Peter is talking about here. It moves towards in a deep, real and active way. In fact, love is so key to who we are as a church. Uh, Some of you work for companies or had worked for companies that speak about their values. Uh, Has anyone worked for a company that has had love as a value? No, it's not, it's not generally seen as, I mean, others. What, what, what are some examples of values that different companies you've had have worked for? Integrity, Integrity that's a big one. Any other? Excellence? Ethics or ethical practice? Yeah. Here, for the Christian church, love is not a value. Love is far more than a value. Love is a defining reality of who we are. Jesus says to his disciples in John chapter 13, they'll know that you're my disciples if you what? 
if you love one another. And Paul, in his section in Colossians chapter 3, if you want to just very quickly turn over to Colossians 3, you'll see that the same idea is present. How key and central is love for the Christian community? In chapter 3 of Colossians verse 12, he has this metaphor of the Christian getting dressed And what they're to do is they're to get rid of some things, the old self like anger, rage, malice and slander. And verse 12, they're to clothe themselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. But there in verse 14, over all these virtues, put on love which binds them all together in perfect unity. You see what love is in Paul's mind? It's the cloak from shoulder to ankle that surrounds everything, the big wrap of love. Why is love so important to who we are? Well, for two reasons. Firstly, we're the recipients of love, God's love and the gospel and the forgiveness of the Lord Jesus. But secondly, love is what makes Christian community work. Love is what makes Christian community work. One of the realities of living in Christian community is that we don't always feel loved by one another. In fact, one of the realities is we feel less than loved. In fact, one of the realities of living in a community of people who know one another well is that we witness one another's sin. And what do we do when we witness one another's sin? Well, here's one response. One response is to think, oh, well, that's, this is a terrible church that has sin within it. I can't believe that there are Christian people who sin. That's one response. But another response is to say, actually, when I witness and when I even feel the effects of others' sin, I'm just starting to scratch the surface of what it is to be part of a church. A man who thought a lot about Christian community and who lived it in remarkable ways at great cost was a man called Diedrich Bonhoeffer. And this book is one of the, I think, finest books on Christian community, one for which if you read it every year, and that was my goal when I left Bible college to read it every year. been out 10 years and I think I've read it two or three times since. But it is such a great book. It's a very short book, but has some profound insights into the nature of what it is just to be in a church. And Bonhoeffer realises very quickly, as he lived within Christian community, that sin happens all the time. That it ought not surprise us. That we ought not be surprised by other people's sin, nor by our own. And firstly, he says, you can respond, firstly, by not feeling superior. Isn't that the way? When we see someone else's sin, often we think to ourselves, oh, that's terrible, that they would say that or that they would do that. But Bonhoeffer says, no. Don't see yourself as superior. See one another's sin as a mirror, as a mirror to actually who you really are. But you are so blind, you can't see yourself. Secondly, he says, quite remarkably, is that, When you see someone else's sin, you should consider your prayer life. Have a listen to this, and this is why. He says, we may suffer the sins of our brother. We do not need to judge 
This is a mercy for the Christian. For when does sin ever occur in the community that he, is, that he must not examine and blame himself for his own unfaithfulness in prayer and intercession, his lack of brotherly service? See what Bonhoeffer says? He says, when you see someone else's sin, you, must, you ought to think, how have you been praying for this person? There is a level of responsibility that Bonhoeffer believes that we all take in one another's lives. Bonhoeffer doesn't see Christian community simply as individuals who are responsible for their own behaviour, but he sees us as an interconnected web of relationships for which our prayers have a sanctifying effect in one another's life. And he says this, He who is bearing others knows that he himself is born, and only in this strength can he go on bearing. He who is bearing others knows that he himself is born. We bear one another's sins. But you can only do that, Bonhoeffer says, when you know that your sins have been born, not by one another, but ultimately by the Lord Jesus. What grows Christian community is not the absence of sin within Christian community. What grows Christian community is not the absence of sin, but the presence of love, the presence of love to cover over a multitude, a multitude of sins. Thirdly, hospitality. This is an opportunity, Peter says, for us to use that which is private to us, that space, our home, to express Christian love. It's interesting that prayer is suggested first in Peter's mind, then love, and here our homes are even a context for love. It's not simply as we gather, but it's a suggestion about the integrated nature of Peter's expectation for Christians as they meet together. This is a great opportunity for us because in so many ways when we open our homes, we open our hearts. One of the great joys for me when I was a young Christian uh, was being the recipient of endless hospitality. I moved up to Newcastle to study at university and I moved in the first day to this little uh, flat and this lady with a baby on her hip came and said that afternoon, she said, look, we're holding a barbecue for a whole bunch of students. Would you like to come? I went to the barbecue that night. It turns out this was a Christian lady and she had all these students. Some were Christian, some weren't. But she and her husband, she graduated from medicine. She could have lived by the beach in Merriweather, but she had chosen to buy a house in the middle of a mozzie-infested suburb because that's where all the university students, because she saw the opportunity for lives to be changed simply by asking people over to her house, and many people's lives were changed by her ministry. Are you doing anything for dinner? People's lives have been changed simply by that phrase. Are you doing anything for lunch? People's lives have been changed. We preach a whole sermon about this, so I won't go on, but simply to say the nature of Christian hospitality isn't simply showing kindness to our friends. Uh, a friend two weeks ago rang us up and said, oh, I'm coming up to Sydney tomorrow, can I stay the night? 
And uh, yeah, of course we said yes, and, and it was a delight to have him here, but that was a friend. He would have done that for me if I'd called him up the night before, but this is not necessarily or only what is being spoken of. When Peter speaks about hospitality, hospitality in the Bible is not welcoming our friends. Hospitality is welcoming people we don't know. Hospitality is welcoming the stranger. Why do we welcome the stranger? Because we were once strangers to God and he has welcomed us in the Lord Jesus. Let me close by saying we have a great opportunity before us as a church to be reminded to be reminded of something that we wouldn't normally think. I don't, my mind doesn't often wander to the judgment of God, to his return and the nearness of his return, but here we've been reminded of that this afternoon. We've been reminded that the Christian life is one of prayer, knowing that he will return. The Christian life is one of hospitality, knowing that he will return. The Christian life is one of love, knowing that he will return. And the Christian life is one of service, knowing that he will return. See, we've got a great opportunity. Do you believe in the return of the Lord Jesus? If we do, if we believe that the return of the Lord Jesus is near, we will pray, we will serve, we will love, and in doing that, we will give praise and honour to the Lord Jesus. That's where he finishes there in verse 11. I want to finish by telling you just this very brief story. A man called C.T. Studd was a graduate of Cambridge University. At Cambridge University, he was the captain of the Cambridge University cricket team. There, they discovered just how good he was, and he was elevated to the English cricket team. He toured Australia in the late 19th century. He was a man who had the applaud and the praise of so many of a nation. He was a man of great intellectual capability, a man of great sporting prowess. But he was also a Christian man. And so he could leave behind the splendours and the fame of the cricket field or of Cambridge University, and he did. He left it to serve in the mission field, and he wrote this poem, and I want to end in this way, just by reading one stanza from it about our lives lived knowing that Jesus will return. He says, Only one life, yes, only one, soon Will its fleeting hours be done, then in that day my Lord to meet, and stand before his judgment seat? Only one life, twill soon be past, only what's done for Christ will last. Let me pray. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us. Thank you for reminding us of what we need to hear, that your return is near. And so, Father, give us lives that are given to what's not natural to us, to pray, to love deeply, to show hospitality and to invite into our private space those who we don't even know. And, Father, in doing that, we ask that our lives would look like your Son and that as you change us more and more, as we grow in these ways, that you would glorify him 
by changing us. And we ask it in his name. Amen.